From simple plus one swords to all powerful artifacts, your average D&D player is going to encounter a lot of magical things throughout their adventures, and your average DM must create and manage far more. But exactly how rare is that ring of protection? What's statistically better, fire protection or cold protection? Well, we've done a deep dive into all the items currently available at the time of recording in 5e from the official D&D sources and have compiled them for you. So if you're a DM looking for the party's next cool bit of loot or a player trying to explain that a damage immunity isn't indeed that busted, then I suggest you stick around for today's episode. Our data was compiled from every current official 5e book release. There is a minor caveat, though, in that we didn't comb through every scrap of Adventurer's League content out there, but they almost exclusively pull from the other official releases anyway, so yeah. And if you came here just looking for the item list, you can find our lovely magic item database on our website. Let's start off with item rarity. There's no hard and fast rules for what differentiates a common item from an uncommon one, or a rare item from a very rare item, but after analyzing them all, I think I can read into the designer's intentions a little bit. Common items are very minor or situational effects that are largely inconsequential. A lot of the items you find here have purely cosmetic features with no in-game mechanical effect. Or if they do have effects that matter, it is usually something that could be duplicated by a first or second level spell. Uncommon items are simple but useful, usually doing one specific thing. You'll find the bottom rung of most plus one items here, and it's generally great tier one loot that's useful up through tier two. Generally speaking, everything here is safe for a DM to hand out as loot in any adventure, with a couple iffy things like a flying speed or certain minor immunities. Rare items usually add either a solid bonus or a combination of a couple smaller features. You'll find the middle rung plus two items here, and usually rare items fit well as major adventuring rewards during tier one, more frequent loot in tier two, and should be still useful through tier three. DMs should be just a little cautious about handing out rare items early on, but giving out multiple rare items throughout a long adventure shouldn't cause many problems. Very rare items usually do multiple things or a single very powerful thing. You'll find the high rung plus three items here, and most very rare items provide abilities that can break early adventures. Very rare items fit best as major adventuring rewards during tiers two and three, and should still be relevant all the way up through tier four. I'd advise DMs to never give out very rare items during tier one, and should only give them out cautiously in situations that call for major rewards in following tiers, such as at the end of a major plot arc or something similar to that. Legendary items represent the top rung loot and are immensely powerful. You'll find plus four and even plus five items here, and even lore relevant items. Legendary items are often the focus of entire campaigns and should only be considered as a loot reward in tier four, possibly as a major story arc reward in tier three. Be very cautious about introducing any legendary items to your games, as they can be adventure warping. Artifacts, however, are less loot as much as they are plot devices as any campaign with an artifact will typically revolve around the artifact itself as a character or a MacGuffin. A little more than a third of all the artifacts are sentient items with wills of their own, and most of the other artifacts are unpredictable or hard to control. Artifacts should never be simple loot, but that doesn't mean the players can't get a hold of one so long as you're okay with the adventure being, well, completely changed around in some ways. As you can see, more than a quarter of all the magical items are rare, followed closely by Uncommon. I find that this provides a bit of insight into 5e's priorities when it comes to tiers of play. 
Common items are usually too small or situational to be particularly relevant, and the very rare legendary and artifacts are too powerful to slot into most tier 1 or 2 adventuring situations. Instead, the majority of items are uncommon or rare, to provide the most options for those first two tiers of play that most players are adventuring at. Next, let's analyze what restrictions 5e places on who can use certain magical items. Firstly, almost every restriction is in one form or another spellcasting based. Most of the restrictions in the multiple category refer to multiple spellcasting classes that could potentially use it, which has been further subdivided into either specific groups of spellcasting class or individual spellcasting classes. We also get some very specific lore-restricted items, like the guild items out of Ravnica or the mark items out of Eberron. There's also a few of the generic bonus items for specific classes rounding out a lot of single-class restrictions. What's interesting is that there's almost no race or alignment restricted items to be found. The only official race restricted item we could find in the whole system was the Dwarven Thrower, specifically only usable by, well, dwarves. And while the spellcasting classes have some item restrictions, there's literally no item usable only by fighters, or only by barbarians, or any of the martial classes. This means that if you decide to take a crack at making your own items, you should avoid similar restrictions if you want to line up with what 5e design is like. It makes a lot of sense, really. Why would you want items that only a tiny percentage of players could actually use? The spellcasting restrictions do make sense, though, as they prevent a single magical item from taking the place of a full dip of multiclassing. Next, let's look at where all these magical items are coming from. It should come as no surprise that the Dungeon Master's Guide contributed nearly half of all the 5e magic items, but I was a bit surprised to learn that the Explorer's Guide to Wildemount was tied for second with Tosh's Cauldron of Everything. That means despite being a setting book, Wildemount represents one of the single largest magic item supplements currently in the game. Statistically interesting for making your own spells, monsters, and other sources of damage, let's take a look at what damage types are often resisted by magic items. This includes full immunities, but mostly consists of resistances, and it's a little deceptive at first due to the massive multiple category there. A lot of items either grant protection against a type of your choice, or they'll often check against the elemental categories of fire, cold, lightning, and acid. Sometimes you'll get special protections against the physical damage types of bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing as well. Still, from this you can see that the fire and cold are often the most resisted alone followed by Poison, with distant runners-up of Psychic, Acid, and Force. And now that we've looked at what damage types magical items protect against, let's look at what damage types you'll be dishing out. The chart is pretty deceptive here, as it's only counting weapons that exclusively deal a single damage type as anything but multiple. By far, though, the most common damage type other than the base physical types, bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing, is Fire. Everybody likes to make flaming swords, and there's a ton of them here. Cold and Poison are also common, as is Necrotic, because making spooky evil weapons just makes sense, I suppose. By far the least used damage type across the board was Thunder, so if you're looking to make some unique weapons, I recommend bringing the, the thunder. thunder. And finally, let's take a look at this big old pile of loot and sort it out statistically. So, our loot hoard is dominated by the ambiguous category of Miscellaneous which includes all the little magical rocks, bits, bottles, and basically everything that isn't worn, wielded, or eaten. Weapons are, no surprise, the largest category, and past that most of our categories are just about the same size. 
Potions and elixirs are quite nearly the same category as consumables, by the way. Consumables just add in the odd single-use items that you don't technically drink as a potion. After going through them all, you can pick out a lot of the design elements from a balanced perspective. Anything that would improve mental stats, mostly, becomes a helm, so you can't double up with double hats or something like that. A lot of skills are tied to gloves so that you specifically can't double up on them, and a lot of the simple numerical bonuses are placed on rings. I hope this episode has given you some ideas over which magical items will be making an appearance in your next campaign, or has even awoken some creativity in order to help you design your own magical items. Either way, thank you guys so much for watching. I really appreciate it. Be sure to like and subscribe because we put out new videos every week. And if you have a favorite magical item or have created one that you're proud of, I would love to read about it down in the comments. Thanks again for watching. My name is Patrick Ferguson from Skull Splitter Dice. And until next time, farewell. Oh, we also sell these t-shirts now. We have a bunch of other designs too that you guys should go check out. So, uh... Uh, yeah, thanks again for watching.